This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Good evening, everyone, and happy Friday. We are very excited to interact with you tonight. My name is Jackson Potter. I'm the co-chair of the Caucus of Rank-and-File Educators, also known as CORE. Uh, We've been going strong to build a militant, liberatory labor movement and the schools our children deserve for the last 12 years. And we want to welcome everyone to this movement moment. Uh, We owe Haymarket a huge debt of gratitude for connecting us and keeping us together during this moment of peril, but where the need for good organizing is greater than ever. So I'm going to pass it on to Alex and Rishi, who are going to say a bit more about the program. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the CORE convention. And again, thank you. Um, My name is Alex uh, Gonzalez. I'm also the co-chair of uh, Caucus of Rank-and-File Educators. Uh, Thank you, CORE members, Haymarket, and fellow labor and education activists um, on tonight's um, panel. Um, I just wanted to remind people, we are the education experts. And we're not alone. We're part of a national uh, movement. Um, and it is us who are going to come up with this proactive vision um, for public education. The, um, our collective analysis and our collective action makes us stronger. Um, and I just also wanted to say that united in solidarity with our union brothers and sisters um, from lake- locals across the country, in coalition with parents, students, community, um, allies, we will overcome the current challenges that we're facing and the challenges that come in the future. Um, Hey, everyone. My name is Rishi Awatramani. I'm an associate member of CORE, an old organizer, and now uh, a researcher researching here in Chicago. It's been an honor over the past year to be building with so many dedicated teacher and worker activists um, welcome to everyone. I want to repeat the gratitude to Haymarket for bringing this important discussion to such a broad audience and just offer a lot of gratitude to all of the rank and file teachers whose struggles over the past decades, you know, have inspired so many and have really changed our common sense of what an organized labor movement can look like. This discussion that we're having tonight is really only possible because of all that courageous action. So tonight, we're going to begin with the discussion between Jesse Sharkey and Professor Beverly Silver. Jesse Sharkey, as probably all of you know, is the president of the Chicago Teachers Union, a veteran high school history teacher, and one of the founding members of CORE. Professor Silver is a professor of sociology and the director of the Rigi Center for Global Studies at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. Um, And the thrust of Beverly's work looks at major waves of labor and social conflict and how those major waves are related to the conflicts and crises built into historical capitalism. It's our hope that the discussion today can feed the powerful struggle of so many teacher activists over these past many years, and we hope it can inspire even sharper strategies for building a new racially and economically just world. 
with that, I'm going to hand it over to Jesse and Beverly before they welcome in a whole panel full of brilliant labor leaders. Um, but for now, over to Jesse and Beverly. Uh, thank you, Rishi, uh, Jackson, Alex, and everyone who's on the call. Um, as Rishi mentioned, I'm Jesse Sharkey, president of CTU. Uh, if this is your first core convention. Welcome. If you've been to many core conventions, it's a little bit new for all of us. One thing I do just want to say as we get going here, it's new to all of us to be doing this virtually, I should say. Uh, it, it, um, one of the things we've always tried to do, though, is keep ideas at the forefront of our, our work and read, think, and try to analyze what's happening and, and not simply be activists, but be people who are, who are thoughtful and have, have um, one foot in practice and the other foot in theory. So, uh, you know, the, we're going to try to start by um, uh, by Professor Silver and I having a conversation in which I hopefully she's going to introduce some ideas that come out of her work and some theoretical ideas, which will then sort of set the table for some of the activists in the second half of, of the discussion tonight to pick up on and, and talk about how that uh, some of those ideas relate back or don't relate, I suppose, uh, back to the, to the situation that they're in around the, in, in, in uh, school districts around the country. So, uh, Professor Silver, thank you so much for being on. Um, we really appreciate it. Start with that. Thank you. I, I, it's, a, it's a great honor to be here, and I'm really looking forward to learning also from all of you. Um, great. I was um, I was hoping you could be in just by um, telling us a little bit about your work and how um, uh, you know how you look at some of the kind of big questions that are facing the labor movement in general. Um, you know, which has been a hard times in, in a number of ways. I mean, there's been a lot of ink spilled about kind of the, the demise. A lot of people wrote off organized labor. And, um, uh, you know, from what I've read of your work, you have some really interesting insights ab about that. And I was hoping maybe you could start there and, and, and sort of fill out a little bit bigger picture of your, of your thinking about that. Yeah. So, um, my work begins with the idea that the obituaries that have been written for labor have been very premature. And We're based, not dead yet. <laughs> yeah, based on a kind of short-term and a historical uh, view of, of working class formation and of labor movements. And that, you know, if, if we look over uh, the, you know, decades or even centuries, we can see labor movements and working classes being constantly made and, and remade as part of uh, historical capitalism. So specifically um, in, you know, one of the things I will look at is how uh, the main industry or the leading industry in capitalism changes over time and the ways in which work, workers uh, in those industries tend to take a leading role in the labor movement. So, um, you know, in the 20th century, it's auto workers. And I came to the conclusion and made the proposal uh, back in 2003 that actually there was a good likelihood that uh, teachers and what I was calling the education industry would be taking the lead in the labor movement in the 21st century. So 
that was that was uh, yeah you called it i i think um well not to not to give ourselves too much credit um auto was still pretty important how what, what was uh, unpack that thinking a little bit so um you know looking at the uh transformations in the uh, labor force uh, globally in the second half of the 20th century one of the places where uh the size of the uh, labor force was growing dramatically was in education, in what I was calling the education industry. So if you look at, uh, I just pulled out, you know, from 1950 to 1990, the size of the teacher labor force globally grew from 8 million to 47 million, so a dramatic increase, and then that increases continued over the last 30 years. So it's one of the, education is one of the areas where uh, the size of the labor force is growing uh, very dramatically. And what's, yeah. and what's driving that? And what, what, like inside the, inside the U.S., um, what's, what's driving that? Well, different things are driving it. But one thing is, uh, is you know, the centrality of education and the new economy so one thing I like to refer to when I'm talking about teachers and I'm talking about the education industry is that we can we can think of it in some ways as the most important capital goods industry of the 21st century. That it's supplying the educated uh, students or former students to the various industries that depend on, on uh, you know, this kind of centrality information economy and educated workforce. So that makes um, teachers not only a growing part of the labor force in the United States and globally, but also one that uh, a part of the labor force that's playing a key role in capital accumulation, a key role in the development of the economy. Uh, so it's a very kind of strategic position that teachers are playing in the overall uh, economy of the United States and globally in the 21st century. Um, you know, I always felt like, you know, it's interesting you mentioned auto, um, you know, because when I was going to teacher training school in the mid to late 90s, um, I, I was I became convinced that there was a kind of a set of ideas about how to amp up production that kind of swept through the auto industry in the 80s in the U.S. I'm not as familiar with the global situation, but that I did, I felt like those ideas were very explicitly being applied to the education world, <laughs> um, you know, in, in terms of like, um, um, uh, you know, sets of, sets of ideas about how, product, how productive teacher labor had to be, um, you know, sets of ideas about like, you know, under how much surveillance teachers are going to have to be about sort of like trying to attack our, our, our autonomy in our classrooms. It, you know, really they were talking about education reform, but really it felt a lot like labor reform and it felt a lot maybe like the kind of labor reforms they were pushing in the auto industry. Right. No, in fact, that, that's a very interesting point because um, you know, uh, one of the things that like I would get a lot of pushback on when I was first trying to make these arguments that they would say that, no, but teachers aren't workers or teachers aren't proletarian. And I would say, well, I don't you know. It's been a while since teachers have owned their own means of production, you know, and gone around with their own uh, tools. And, and at the same time that we're seeing a lot of the same kind of pressures um, that are being used to cut costs in manufacturing are also being applied in um, 
in, 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 in not just manufacturing, but all other kind of other industries that are being also applied to, applied to teachers and that there's a process of proletarianization of teachers going on that's part of uh, cutting, cutting costs, but that means decreasing autonomy. So one of the reasons like people would say, no, but teachers aren't workers because they have autonomy, but there's this decreasing autonomy, there's an increasing pressure in terms of workload. Um, there's, I, I was saying teachers don't own their own means of production, but you're being asked to you know, buy supplies for your own classrooms, you know, and spend, spend your own money, take it out of your wages. So, um, so there is a, uh, a sense of a kind of process of, uh, what, you know, what I call proletarianization or, but, you know, increasing labor control, increasing loss of autonomy uh, in, in teachers. And so it's very much subject to a lot of the same kind of cost cutting uh, principles as, uh, as as labor, as as labor workers in general. Interesting. And so, put, so now put put that uh, put that picture together. So, I mean, you're saying that there's an investment in the sector, there's hiring, and that's happening at the same time that conditions for teachers are getting worse. How does that? Um, how does the picture then, you know, move in the direction of militancy or or, right. the, or well, labor struggle? Exactly. Exactly that. So the. So that uh, this the, the, that we have a situation of increasing grievances, which I think you're all from, <laughs> and and and, and uh, but but increasing empowerment. So part of the empowerment is the size of. Uh, can, I, I'm sorry, I've got my chat is making noise, but should I just ignore it? Yeah, I'll as best you can. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, so there's yeah so there's increasing grievances, but at the same time increasing empowerment in many ways, although you might not feel like that. But empowerment partly comes from this large size of the teacher labor force. You right. know, social power. Social power within yeah, the United right, States, right, right. but also globally. If, um, and and there are other kind of things like because I've done some comparison between you know, teachers and auto workers, textile workers, you know, fast food workers in terms of bargaining power. And teachers have certain advantages in terms of bargaining power, some disadvantages, but also some advantages. So it's very hard to relocate production, right? You can't, you know, the, 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 the teacher teaching has to be done where the students are. So you can't although we'll just, see, although in the era of Zoom, we'll see what they try to come up with. But <laughs> that's a good well, point. That's yeah. That that's the big question is that <laughs> because, well, because now we're all teaching from home on top of it, right? You know. But and then, uh, you know, historically, again, the automation has been difficult. But again, we have to see what's happening now, and you know, because there, there are continuous pressures to go in the direction of automation. Um, but and but you know, like unlike. Unlike uh, auto workers, like you know, you can you have a, a a stoppage of production in a windshield wiper factory in the in the automobile industry, and that you know if it lasts long enough, it can cause particularly in just in time production conditions, it can stop the entire assembly, uh, you know, the, the the entire assembly of the final product. So so there's this thing that I call workplace bargaining power, which is the strategic power that. Uh, workers in mass production industries have where there's a, like a, a very uh, detailed or, or complex division of labor that you stop in one part, you know, and this is even back to the GM factory that, the, you know, I'm sorry, the GM strike in 36, 
was, you know, that the production was stopped in the engine factory and then that brought production to a halt in all of GM because of the integrated nature of production. So that's a disadvantage for teachers because, of course, somebody could stop uh, teaching in one classroom, but it's not going to stop the school or one school could stop, but it's not going to stop the whole system. So it does, there's not that kind of workplace bargaining power, but there's another kind of bargaining power which is the centrality of teachers and the social division of labor, right? Which we see very much in this. We, we, we've seen it many times and when teachers go on strike, but it's like, it, you know, it's like screaming at us during this COVID crisis is the fact that if teachers can't work, don't work or can't work, that then parents can't work, you know, working parents can't go to work and, and, and there's also, so I actually, let me just take one second because this describe this describes this question of the um, social division of labor of teachers. I say teachers are strategically located in a social division of labor, whereas the raw material inputs that go into textile or automobile production can be stored for the duration of a strike. The same cannot be done with the raw material inputs in the education industry, which is students. I mean, they just can't be warehoused while the strike goes on. Teacher strikes have ripple effects throughout the social division of labor, disrupting family routines and making it difficult for working parents to do their own jobs. Moreover, where there have been exceptionally long, frequent strikes, um, fears that have been raised about the long-term impact of teacher labor unrest on the final product, that is the students' educational accomplishments, as well as the proper socialization as citizens. So we're, so, so there's a, a kind of particular uh, power, you know, of disruption that, yeah. it, that teachers have that I think is almost unique um, in terms of this uh, centrality in the social division of labor, right? And and just, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, no, I, I, let me um uh, I'll, I'll I'll get you to finish that thought. Let me try to like uh, ask you to bring in another thought, which um uh, which is something that I that the, I read in your writing, which about which has intrigued me. I'd be interested in hearing you talk about it mm -hmm. as well. Um, which is the idea that like the um the the ruling classes, you know, think about the the. Forces in government, um, bosses that run the school system, etc., um, also have wound up kind of creating a, a you know, the, the some of the sets of reforms that they've created, the things that they're trying to do in cities and around the country, etc., have also produced a sort of a crisis of legitimacy. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's one of the things that I think has been really interesting to me. Listening to you talk about kind of teacher social power and the way struggle comes out of it is this: is the degree to which like once we start fighting, the kind of mask falls off and it becomes clear that they don't actually really give a shit about working class people of color in particular. Uh -huh. um, you know, they don't really care. They talk about democracy all the time, but they don't really seem like they actually care about democracy when, 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 you know, big decisions are on the line that they care about. You know, they didn't take votes on closing schools in Chicago, et cetera. So I was just hoping you could bring that idea in. Yeah. So I think that um, one of the things that um, in terms of teacher struggles, but in terms of all, all struggles right now, uh, popular struggles, is 
the context in which it's happening and, and the context in which we're all struggling is one of a deep crisis of capitalism and, a, uh, and, and globally and in the United States. And one that takes the form, I think it's, it takes the form of a deep crisis of, of legitimacy for capitalism but, and for ruling groups. And, um, and this is like, you know, it, it's visible in, in, the, in the recognition that, you know, the in, in extreme levels to which inequality have risen and the fact that during the COVID crisis, the inequality increases even further uh, and, you know, billionaires multiply their, billi- their number of billions during this period. Um, and, you know, Carl uh, Pawnee had this interesting um, line in this book. He wrote The Great Transformation, which he was writing in the middle of the Second World War. He wrote, unless, unless the alternative to a given social setup is a plunge into utter destruction, no crudely selfish class can maintain itself in the lead. And I was, I was reading that, and like a lot of people read that, and they say, oh, what he's saying is, that no crudely selfish class can maintain itself in the lead because it'll just create a plunge into utter destruction. But he's not actually saying no crudely selfish class can maintain itself in the lead. He's saying that crudely selfish classes are going to take us into utter destruction. And that's the situation we're in right now. We have, you know, in terms of the economic elite, the political elite, they're their behavior is one of a crudely selfish class that's taking us into a period of, of, of really um, barbarism, to use another, uh, to, to pull on another phrase. So, um, you know, so from this point of view, we're not getting a vision of a sustainable future, a peaceful future, a healthy future, a future where people can feel safe, uh, where people can feel valued, you know, young people, old people, anyone. And it's not gonna, it's not coming from this elite. They've shown that they have no capacity to give us that kind of vision. They're just not, if, you know, if they, if, they, if they had the capacity to do it, they would have done it after 2008. But after 2008, we've had another 12 years of growing inequality, you know, back and forth in different ways. But, um, and, and so I think that that's one of the things that I've found really interesting about the recent um, struggles by teachers and the, and the teachers movement is that, um, that there's an articulation, there's a real conscious effort, it seems to me, conscious or not conscious, but there's a real clear effort to try to set to try to provide a hegemonic vision of the struggle. So teachers are obviously are struggling for their own interests, right? Are struggling to make their own working conditions better. But they're also posing it in a way that in fighting for your own interests, you're fighting for the general interests of the community. You're fighting for your students, you're fighting for their families, you're fighting for the neighborhoods, right? You're fighting for your city, you know, fighting for the country fighting for the world, right? And so I think that that, um, that that capacity to articulate a hegemonic vision combined with the social power, so it's the kind of the social power and the capacity to articulate a hegemonic vision in part, you know, 
I mean, in part it's a political choice, and in part it's because of your location. It's the location of teachers, you know, that you're able to see the issues you see on a daily basis in your work, the issues that affect your students, the issues that affect the community, the, the city, you know, and, and yeah. that's important. So, that's, I mean, that's very, those are, those are um, I, I think, very clear ideas and kind of clarion calls for our, our work in a lot of ways. That it's those, those are the things that I that I think a lot of us can recognize in our a lot of the activists um, on this panel can can recognize in our own conditions. Um, you know, there's a there's a community leader who's been a uh, an important ally in Chicago who will say. Um, you know, you can't, you know, and he, he often sort of, he, he, he branders this against the school board when they talk about, all the, you know, how much they love, uh, how much they love students. And he points out that those, you know, the, the conditions that parents love, you know, live in um, aren't, aren't conditions of love at all. There are conditions of exploitation and privation, um, you know, racist um, uh, segregation in a city like Chicago. He, and he always says, you can't, uh, and, and, and I think probably across the country, of course, you know, and he said, you can't love students if you hate their parents. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, and we, and we and we take the other thing, which is if you want to show love for the students, you have to also show love for the people who make up our communities and, and you know, parents, students, um, uh, working class people in general. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, maybe give us some, um, uh, you know, a, a thought that I can go to the panel with. Kind of, you know, like maybe you know, feel free to suggest if there's something you'd, that you'd like to hear the panel um, chew about. Because I want to start bringing in some of these amazing activists into the conversation. That would be great. Yeah, the, the, the thought I had was about, um, you know, the strength the capacity to disrupt the social division of labor, you know, to like just disrupt society is also like a vulnerability because it's what, you know, those who are uh, fighting against you will try to use to, to say you're acting selfishly, you're disrupting, right? And so, uh, you know, it's this, it's this kind of dialectic, I don't know, but a strength, this kind of combination, contradiction of str the strength is also the... the the, the potential weakness and that and that's why I mean I think that that we're you know the successes as far as I understand but you'll tell me that the successes have always been based again back to this capacity uh, the success of the recent struggles of teachers has been due to the capacity to articulate uh, this hegemonic vision where the, str your, the struggles of teachers are in the broader interest of the community. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking like how I think, you know, as we go deeper into this crisis of call it crisis of capitalism, call it a systemic crisis, whatever, that the desire that the, the desire to find scapegoats, you know, so immigrant scapegoats or but teachers actually can, you know, you, you can see this little bit of scapegoating of teachers, you know, also going on in the, in the COVID crisis. Yeah. And so I, yeah. So I think that this question of, um, you know, both what I would say is the capacity, you know, how are you basically uh, feel that the challenges in terms of um, communicating this 
uh, th th this vision and, and I think reality that your struggles are in a broader interest of, of, of defending public services, you know, the public services of public good. I think nurses are also the other, um, you know, uh, part of the labor movement that's in a similar thing, you know, because of education and health, you know, the centrality of uh, the right to education and the right to, to health care and, and health. Um, and so that, that, and then I, I think you were already hinting at it too, is this interesting thing about uh, being able to, when, I think you were hinting at it with your comment about um, you can't love the children if you can't, don't love, if you hate their parents. Right. So it's this thing of the capacity to also uh, partly articulate the vision, but also link up with other kind of movements, anti-racism movements, you yeah. know immigrant rights movements, et cetera, yeah. that, comes from, that comes from this position. Very, very, very good. Um, you know, we, we, I'd love to just keep um, uh, listening to you kind of talk and lay, lay, lay out ideas all night. Um, but I think it'll be really interesting also to, to, to bring in a couple extra voices. Yeah. And for us to silver, um, um, we'll, you know, uh, you know, as we go through, if there's things that you want to chip in, um, uh, you, you know, feel free and then we'll come back to you at the end as well. But let me take that question about like, you know, the, the um, and we'll start with Annie Tan, who's a, was a teacher in Chicago who, um, we, um, uh, we, we lost in a trade to New York, but, um, is still doing good work in New York. And, um, Annie, so that, just that, that question that Professor Silver was talking about at the end, which is like, can you talk a little bit about, um, the kind of the, the, the social, you know, the, how you build social demands in the union about conditions that parents and their communities are in, et cetera. How, and how does that, how does that fit into your work right now? So I really think, uh, well, thank you all for being on this panel. I'm really honored to be here representing the Moore Caucus of the UFT, uh, the Teachers Union. We're a social justice uh, caucus. Uh, and as everyone here, we stand for our students, our students' learning conditions, our teachers' working conditions. And I think people are getting really fed up and saying, you know, we teachers and nurses, as Dr. Silver said, um, are the main contributors to all this. And they're mostly female professions, right? So I think it's really important to understand that there's a lot of unpaid labor that teachers have always given, right? In order to be able to do this job. Um, and that there's a lot of caregiving and emotional labor that are involved in both, right? Um, we're starting just to see with COVID that they don't care about us. Like it's clear with the teacher shortages, in New York City, uh, schools have been reopened uh, since September 29th. We've had two delayed reopenings that it's, and we've had 75% of students opt to go fully remote because the parents and the families, like they know, right? So it's really about coalition building. It's uh, defying the mayor's message that there is a mandate around schooling because this is COVID-19 is not a one issue thing around schooling. And we know this It's affecting uh, families of color uh, disproportionately. So uh, just thinking about the fact that we have to demand what's right for us, but we also unfortunately are reacting to this crisis and we're pointing out what's happening that's wrong, but we're also demanding much more right now um, that hasn't been historically given. I think for myself, I had to demand, I had to take a medical accommodation. I never would have thought I would take a medical accommodation for my asthma, but 
as soon as I saw the school conditions, I was like, I will not do this. I can teach remotely. Um, and that's a decision a lot of my fellow teachers are facing right now. I just got a text message from a fellow teacher who's finally possibly taking her medical accommodation because she will not take these conditions anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, it's definitely uh, uh, conditions in our schools are a powder keg and COVID is exposing, you know, the, the you know, the gaping inequalities that were already already there in a lot of ways. Let me bring Barbara Mataloni in, into the conversation. Um, Barbara is the former president of NT, MTEA, currently works for Labor Notes, um, was uh, crucial in, in um, uh, building the caucus that that has kind of given a, uh, a social justice and organizing framework to, t- uh, with, to teachers in Massachusetts. Um Barbara, could you come in and talk also a little bit about this question of uh, I, I sort of what we call it social justice unionism, but it's about raising questions about conditions for our students and their families, um, and maybe sort of tie that into sort of the changes that you've been seeing in education organizing over the last uh, period of time. Yeah, although I do want to pick up Beverly's question because yeah, I think it actually is like the question we have to be attending to right now. So you told us we could do that, Jesse. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, so I was going to do summarize that. Doing a bad like job. I, I really, I, I think, um, like in my work in labor notes and through the United Caucus of Rank and File Educators, uh, uh, left caucuses throughout the country, one of the things that's really struck me at this moment in this crisis of capitalism and the context of the pandemic is that it seems so much that it is a moment that we have power, like our leverage to withhold our labor and disrupt is like, it's so clear right now. And yet, even given the, the 10 years leading up to this, beginning with the Chicago Teachers Union and, and the core work, and then you know leading to the UTLA strike and the recent strike uh, CTU, we, we haven't seen sort of a broad uh, you know, the kinds of walkouts and, and you know, certainly more caucus uh, power to you for the work you did in New York. But like, and I, I am, I'm interested and I've really been struggling with that we haven't used that leverage. And I think it's to, to Beverly's point, this vulnerability uh, and that, that we sort of have, are, struggle as educators with our position in the social division of labor. Uh, and I think the ruling class understands that and has been very clear in in attacking that vulnerability uh, and attacking educators uh, when we say we want to be safe, uh, refusing that this is about safety for the well-being of the community and the students. And, and I think the, the one of the lessons I'm drawing from that from past experiences uh, is that when I was uh, president of the MTA and we were able to shut down the attempt to increase the number of charters in Massachusetts, we did that by accessing a vision, uh, again, to your point about vision uh, and what's possible, uh, that, that, that was contrary to what we were being told was true about ourselves, was true about students, and was true about the families with which we worked that actually there is a piece of, uh, of families that wants teachers to be safe, that recognizes that this is not healthy, that recognizes that this is a problem, and that, that as we organize, we need to act from uh, a, a, the, the understanding that we have a shared vision and work and, and to, 
twist quickly to your question, Jesse, so I can say I answered a little bit. And I think that's what social justice unionism does. Uh, it, and it does that in a broad way. And now in the context of the pandemic, we need to double down on that and trust ourselves as educators and, and trust our students and communities that we actually can and do have a shared vision for the world that we want. We have to act from that. Yeah, no, I'm very, I'm very glad you uh, unpacked that, Barbara. I, I, I think that's that was that was an important articulation. Um, let me, um, let me bring Diamond Tay Brown uh, into the conversation. Diamond Tay is the president of the Baltimore Teachers Union and it was an activist in the Beemore Caucus. Um, thanks for coming on. Um, and can you talk a little bit about kind of how you see this question of, uh, of the relationship between our workers unionists and um, having a broader vision about social justice in the context of a system in crisis? Can you talk about the, uh, how you see that from, you, from your your vantage, Dante? Uh, sure. One of the things uh, that I always talk about is uh, not speaking about teachers and community um, and school support staff as two mutually exclusive groups because they can be one and the same. Um, and I'm a, I'm an example of that. I live in, I live where my students live. Um, and I went to the same schools as my students and the same things that I'm fighting for as an educator in my school system is also because of how those schools impact my community that I live in, which those schools are in. And a lot of times um, I think that people uh, make these groups uh, two different people. And they're not, you know, we talk about parents and educators, but I know in Baltimore City, a lot of the teachers are parents of Baltimore City public school students. And uh, it seems like when, um, and so I think that um, we should lift that narrative more uh, that the very people that are in our schools teaching and supporting are also community members. Um, because, and I think that that has gotten lost. And I think a part of uh, the way it's gotten lost is probably through, I guess, uh, things like alternative education programs or just maybe not having an intention intent on making certain that the people that work in the school uh, buildings are people from the community. Because if you make certain that the people that are in front of the students are community members, then you don't have to work so hard on bridging the two together because it's it's already together. Right, right. Um, you know, it's interesting uh, how just how how sort of simple of an idea or, you know, powerful and plain of an idea that is, um, how controversial that can be and, and how much kind of um, indignation that an idea like that can uh, can present in the schools. Um, thank you, Damante. Uh, let me um, 
Let's now uh, bring in Arlene Inouye. Arlene is uh, one of the uh, members of the Union Power Caucus and has been a long-term officer of UTLA, was formerly treasurer and is now the secretary of UTLA. Um, Arlene, I, I would love to hear, I, LA has been an inspiration for us in Chicago for a long time. We've been we've been copying what you guys did since before we were in office. Um, hopefully you've copied us back a little bit. Um, I, you, you might be on mute, so uh, make sure you get yourself off mute. Um, because we definitely want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> uh, can you bring in the like one of the things that Professor Silver talked about was this idea that that teach the the, the investments in education, the growth of the sector, the amount of just maybe just the amount of ideological attention to it has produced an increase in our power, and we've actually been able to get some wins. Um, can you t- can you connect this idea of kind of a vision of unionism that's connected to social demands? Um, social justice unionism, for lack of a better term, although some people don't like that term, um, you know, fair enough. Um, it, that, on the one hand, then also our ability to start getting some organizing momentum and some wins. Absolutely, Jesse. And we, we've learned a lot from Chicago, too. So the feeling is mutual. I'm really happy to be with all of you this afternoon. And um yeah, I want to start by saying, you know, we're bargaining right now uh, regarding uh, an extended distance learning contract or side letter, as well as uh, we're pushing back, you know, on the hybrid schedules because it's uh, the COVID crisis is surging in California. And so we're at the bargaining table, yet I can say that we have We've had a lot of power at the bargaining table. The district is really listening to us. We bring forward uh, the health metrics, for example. And I got to say, this ha- this has come from the strike in 2019. Uh, we switched the tables. And we are feeling in so many different ways that we are leading the narrative. We are leading on social justice as we put it forward. Uh, Our district is 35,000 members. We are 90% students of color. We do have a majority. We have a 75% women, but also a majority of um, teachers of color, which is which is really exciting. Um, We're the fifth largest economy in the world, but we've been at the bottom in per pupil spending because uh, the billionaires in California were, you know, make us the richest state, but um, the gap and uh, the poverty and inequality has been so manifest. And that was the impetus, part of the impetus for our strike where we were able to connect, as Annie said, you know, our working conditions, our students' learning conditions, connect that together and authentic, build up authentic relationships with parents, with community, uh, and, and really look together at creating the vision of our society, bringing into the bargaining table uh, community schools. Uh, Not only were we lowering class sizes and getting a nurse at every school more than one day a week, but we also a vision for community schools where there's local decision-making with parents and community educators together. So um, it's so critical because we are in every... Educators are in every community of this nation, 
And we also have very deep and emotional relationships with our students and parents. Mm -hmm. So when you talk when when Beverly talks about how central we are to the, the labor force, we play such a critical role um, in what we do. And when we were being attacked uh, in the 90s with being on the cover of the Time magazine with a rotten apple, um, I remember talking to so many of our educators in, in L.A. when they would be crying and saying, why did they see us that way? Why are we attacked? And I would tell them, you know, they don't realize your power. You guys are the ones who are teaching the generations to come. You are opening their minds. And educators do have a lot of power in so many ways. And so it has been so exciting to see that come forth. And when we get our uh, our superintendent, who was a hedge fund manager, to now promote uh, stopping the privatization in our state and the charter schools having a cap on it, you know you're really getting power when people are uh, changing their positions and their attitudes and coming on board. And that's what we felt with, um, that's where we are now. We are being able to lead that narrative. Yeah, yeah. No, I, um, that is a, uh, that's a really good point that, that we went from being the butt of, butt of jokes. I, you know, I can, yeah, I remember feeling really, um, really crapped on, like, you know, the, the problems of our society were being laid at, laid at our feet. Um, and we're not the butt of jokes as much. There's that, there's that movie that came out a couple of years ago. It's like a Liam Neeson vehicle, um, called Widows. It's about like a, it's like a, female caper movie i forget the um i'll come up with the, the actress's name in a minute but you know it, it's really it's a crime movie really but like she's badass and guess what she does for a living she's an organizer for the chicago teachers union <laughs> so i was like okay not, not um uh, not just the butt of every joke anymore um Although I'm sure they kick furniture when they when they talk about us. And one place that I know has had the bosses kicking furniture uh, is West Virginia. And let's get um, Nicole McCormick into the conversation. She's from um, Fayette County um, and is part of West Virginia United um, and has been um, important in that work. And uh, yeah, no, certainly one place where, you know, they got the attention of the world um, was West Virginia. Could you talk about some of the, these themes that we've been bringing up in, in, in that context? Nicole. Yeah. Um, and guys, it's always great to be with you. And it's an honor to see so many powerful ladies and Jesse sitting in front of me. Um, <laughs> so uh, I West Virginia, I talk about being the butt of the joke. <laughs> um, West Virginia felt like the butt of the joke for a very long time. We always used to joke, thank God for Mississippi, because if we would trade places between 49th and 50th and, and everything. And so whenever that we actually successfully struck and shut down the state two years in a row in 2018 and 2019, there was this complete shift in how that we looked at ourselves. You know, we felt proud to be West Virginia educators. And I, I never thought it would happen, but now that it has, it's changed everything. It's changed the way that I look at my labor. I know I own it. It's changed the way that I interact with my other workers. You know, I, I'd never even thought about myself as a female worker. Like, I just was like, oh, I'm a teacher, like the end. And so now, like being part of a profession that's 
practically 80% female. And knowing that we are systemically underfunded and undervalued because we're viewed as care workers and care workers are typically female and not paid. It's, it's totally just turned my world upside down in, in the best way possible. And, and so, you know, in West Virginia, we have a very vulnerable population. There's only about 1.7 million of us. And we are, by and large, um, poor, old, white, and chronically ill. And so during this, we have grandparents and great-grandparents raising our students, And who is most susceptible to serious complications and death from COVID-19? The elderly. And so while that we've been in the midst of all this, I feel like that our people have still clung to that sense of power, knowing that our choices and how that we interact, how that we educate our communities, how that we um, interact with our bosses is always for the greater good. It's for the greater good of our communities. We're trying to save grandparents' lives. And I feel like that the COVID crisis has, like that several of you have said, it's just laid bare what was already there. And, you know, we as educators, we see that every day. Like we have that unique window. We know what's going on. But the rest of the world is kind of going, that's what's happening. And so schools have been like the tourniquet. And in West Virginia, you know, we have a lot of food insecurity. People can't drink their water. I mean, there's a lot of things going on. They don't have Internet access. And so what 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 that we do have is we have power. We have power in the struggle. We have power in the knowledge that we are connected to our community because we are a community. Like Diamond Tay said, you know, we are the parents. We are the people paying the taxes. We are the people going to church with the other folks that go to our schools. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we have to always hold on to that. And know that, yes, you know, it can be turned on us in some ways, but the way that we live our lives and do our jobs, can they really talk that much trash about us? Like people see through that. They know who we are. And uh, we certainly get their attention when um, we we shut, when we, you know, when we strike, when we get their attention that way. Um, It's obviously not the only thing. Um, but it, it's one of the things that we've had some success doing. Um, and I want to um, w- let's go back to the panel. Um, maybe I could actually popcorn around a little bit because it just one of the, you know, that is to say, go, go out of order. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear from some of the folks who like I, I now um, I count myself as having been at this for a while. I've been teaching for 22 years and leading. Well, I started, I went to the classroom in 98 and, um, and then I've been on leave uh, helping to run the CTU for a decade now. So I've been at it for a while. Um, and it's, it's not the same, you, you know, that is, it's, you can't say that if you think about what our power is now, that you think about it the same way as you would have thought about it a decade ago. Um, when, uh, you, you know, the role of a lot of union activists was to make sure they got to the mic so that people, you know, and to, to, to take up the space so people couldn't ask questions, um, um, you, you know, in which loyalty was sort of a more important quality than people's willingness to take risks and um, other kinds of, you know, other, other kinds of um, uh, activism. So, um, I, you know, I'd, lo- I'd love to hear like from, from someone who's who's seen this change happen and, and share some thoughts about kind of, um, you know, what maybe what, thoughts about why and, and kind of um, um, what 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 were the things that we did that made that possible? 
maybe it wasn't. Um, um, uh, you know, uh, Barbara, Arlene, you guys have, you know, have been in the classroom for a long time. Um, uh, again, been around the movement. What, what, um, what are your thoughts about that? So I, it, I'll go ahead and start. I mean, I, I think part of it is, um, as talked about earlier, like the system is just so much more brutal. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the daily experiences of educators before the pandemic uh, and of students and like just was excruciatingly disrespectful and the, the, the sort of lean production models and the, uh, the, the lack of autonomy uh, profound. So I, I think that, was part of it. Um, but I also think that because of that, uh, and because of groups like CORE and Union Power in UTLA, and then the, the, the UCORE uh, movement, more and more educators were given opportunities, big and small. And I think the smaller is important as the big. Uh, and that's a lot of the work that we do in the UCORE is it to, um, to, to know each other in a space uh, where they understood that they actually had collective power. Uh, and whether that was by learning how to march on the boss, uh, whether it was building towards a strike, uh, acting in coalition with the community, that, that we, there was, there were like within the context of a, an increasingly brutal work experience uh, people were finding each other. And I think the caucus formations are actually critical in helping people to find each other uh, with an intentionality about what coming together would mean as organizers, developing an analysis of power and learning how to act uh, collectively uh, and experience their power. Um, and I'll, I'll just say like quickly from my own experience, uh, you know, when I was elected president of the MTA, uh, you know, I had a 72 person board. I had seven allies on that board. Mm. Uh, and, um, and the, and the caucus had to work like throughout my tenure to continue to move and build power by giving people experiences of using their power, not by telling them about it, but by creating opportunities for people to experience and use their power in meaningful ways. When the uh, team that was elected, when I turned out in 2000, uh, 18, that election, that convention, I literally, I, I felt like I was watching a tide go in and out uh, in, in the sense of the, like our opposition was fighting us because we were a social justice union. That was how their attack on us. And it was entirely and completely ineffective. Uh, and that isn't just because of the work we were able to do as EDU within MTA, but it was because of the work that educators across the country were doing, that people were learning from, uh, and 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 feeling the possibilities that they had as workers and unionists. So I think it's been a remarkable transformation, and I trust we're going to get back to that as we figure out how to address this current crisis, which has been so debilitating uh, at, at the same time. Yeah, yeah. No, there's, there's. I, I I've definitely seen a, a sea change in terms of the just what works, you know, what, what our, what our movements are capable of. And that, that comes in a lot of ways from, you know, a rank and file members and it's driven from democratic processes in our union. Um, 
Ar- Arlene, can you can yeah, you comment sure. on this a little bit? Yeah, thank you for that. And I'm going to date myself and say, I remember these discussions in the 80s, uh, social justice unionism or whatever you want to you know, term, but these ideas are not new. Uh, and the issues of having, you know, parent collaboration in a meaningful way, local school decision making, uh, addressing racism and sexism and other isms. Uh, these are ideas that were have always been there, but they were not popularized until recent years. And I think, uh, as Barbara mentioned, the cuts I mean, things are worse. Things have gotten much worse. And I think it did create conditions like in West Virginia and other places where there was more of a willingness to say, I can't survive, right, the way it is. I'm willing to put myself on the line. And I think, you know, I think unions have needed to change. And this should be always the direction of unions is this broader vision. And um, I think you know, in UTLA, we worked on this strike for five years. If anyone thinks it was an easy thing, it was intentional. It was building the infrastructure. And I've got to say that it is is exactly the right thing because now we have a whole group of new leaders that have come from the strike that were challenged, that saw uh, the situation in a new with new eyes and put themselves on the line. And the whole uh, meaning of being a union is that collective power that we come together in and we rise up. And so I think for a number of reasons and the influence of all of you here and more of seeing the national movement that this is, we are a part of a national movement and claiming that, uh, yeah, we can make that difference. Right. Yeah, good, good. Um, uh, now let's hear from some of the folks who, um, you know, like me, didn't didn't come into the classroom in the um, mid to late 90s, but who, you know, came in more recently, um, you know, who are, you know, and your, your impressions of kind of like, you know, what what drew you to the movement and where and frankly where do you think the movement needs to keep going um um maybe we'll just uh, um uh, sort of do reverse order um nicole do you want to come into this and then we'll go back through sure um you know being in a very red rural state i've learned very quickly that you have to be issues focused you know, to, to, to exist is political, right? (laughs) Um, But you have to be issues focused and, and that has to be broad. And I feel like that you have to bring in workers from everywhere because your parents are workers. Your, you know, your secretary is married to someone that may not work in the school system and their issues are your issues. And, you know, being being from a resource colony, which is what West Virginia is, you know, environmental justice is is continually up there because we have people that are have been on a boil water advisory for 12 years. You know, we have schools that haven't been able to pre covid people couldn't drink out of the water fountain. And so I feel like that, like like Arlene was saying, that whenever that you're more inclusive, you're more transparent, you're more democratic, you're continually bringing in new people and those new people bring in more power and they have a a different view than you. You know, I started teaching in, in 2009 
And I joined the union the very first day that I taught. And I went through, you know, the kind of traditional, this is what my idea of a union is. And that got, you know, blown apart and re-pieced back together into something much more strong because I realized that the union is all of us. And I also think that it's important for us to look at ourselves as the working class. It's important for us to look at ourselves and say that I am my community and it is my job to stand up and speak out because I'm in a position that I can do that. And that does include all all of the justice that we can impart for our communities and for our fellow workers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well put. Um, uh, Diamond Tate, uh, can you add into that? I mean, you you haven't been the president of of uh, BTU for that long, although for a minute now. Um, I'm I'm sure there's a bunch of challenges. Um, what's your sense of like um, what's exciting about the movement and where it needs to go? Well, so far everything has been exciting about the movement for me so far. <laughs> Um, never a dull moment, huh? No, never a dull moment. It's my fourth year in the Baltimore City school system, and my and I'm a year and a half into being the president of the union. Um, I rolled in somehow to be more Baltimore movement and rank and file educators. Um, Christina got me, and uh, instantly then was connected to Core, and it was just like a whirlwind. It was like be more Core. Core was like. I just remember like being in a fishbowl at a convention and then being charged to run for leadership and then bam. (laughs) So uh, everything has been exciting. You know, all I've seen is power through organizing um, for ever since I've, since I've stepped on the scene and I saw that, you know, as a grassroots organizer before being in the labor movement, and I was just fortunate enough to run into the right people uh, as the entry point into the labor movement. Um, and, you know, and and so everything's been exciting. Um, it's challenges every day. Um, I feel like I have a really good support system. I think it was really important. I think what's really important about Shifting the labor movement is having a support system for the people that you want to put in place to make the shift. Because, you know, people, it's easy to say, hey, we need you to uh, shut this down. And, hey, we need you to dismantle this. And, hey, we need you to disrupt that. But all that comes with sacrifice, uh, hate, uh, emotional drain. And so, you know, it's great having that body of people that you can go to and they say, you know, keep going because the very work that we're talking about doing is, uh, I think, uh, Nicole just said is the very work that we end up getting persecuted for. So, uh, it's been amazing for me because, um, people know that I'm a very vocal person. I have very, uh, uh, non-conventional ideas that I'm not quiet about. And so, you know, I do uh, get a lot of heat for that. So I'm grateful for the core family. And I think that if we continue the structures that are in place, we could continue to uh, grow the movement in the in the direction that we want it to grow in. 
Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that's been really inspiring um, watching you guys in Baltimore is that, you know, you don't mumble and apologize for your ideas. You put them out there and you try to make it the watchword for how we're going to organize and, and win. Um, you know, it wasn't clear to us in Chicago that we were going to win the 12 strike. You know, we were fighting the former chief of staff of the president of the United States. And, you know, we had a political machine that was a powerful one. And it was a little bit like running into a buzzsaw. And I definitely appreciate what Arlene said about, about how much work. You know, the, the duck looks very calm on the surface of the water, but underneath it, the water is pedaling its ass off. And, and that's, you know, I think that's kind of a model for um, success. And I've been really um, proud that we've continued to sort of move the thing forward. Um, Andy, what's your what's what's your take on sort of um, you know as as a person who's part of the new generation of of, of union activists coming in? Um, what's it, what's it like? In, you know, you can tell me what your experiences have been like and where you think um, our, our work on the labor movement needs to go. I think right now the reason why there has been so much success in pu- pushing students and uh, staff back into the schools buildings is because there's been so much division. Right. If you read the New York Times and you read other sections where they're talking about, oh, uh, students are suffering. Oh, here's what teachers think. They think of students and teachers as two different things and they don't consider us as community. We we have to reframe this and remember that teachers and nurses are the most trusted professions in America. Right. And there's a reason for that, because we show up for our communities every single day. Um, But in. Unfortunately, so I saw something in the YouTube comments about what we think about special ed and uh, elementary and other people being divided. We shouldn't be divided. The reason why like movements can be harder and the month on Monday, New York City is going to reopen elementary and pre-K centers. Right. And not middle and high school is to divide our movements. Right. And to make it much harder for us. And we have to remember that it's the coalition move, uh, building that has like kept us going. Chicago, uh, if you didn't de- you didn't say Black Lives Matter out loud, you would not have the currency. You would not have the power you have right now because you've actually been standing up since 2014. I was standing with you at Black Lives Matters rallies when other folk were like, we shouldn't say this out loud. Right. Um, And people, like Barbara said, really do have to feel their power. I think that um, in places here like New York, uh, we had, as, you know, Arlene's talking about spending so many years uh, planning for strike preparations. Our union gave us two weeks to plan for a strike that never happened, right? But because more actually, uh, my caucus uh, in the UFT actually tried to help members learn uh, what strike actually look, what strikes actually look like. We had, we maxed out a thousand person meeting. We couldn't let people in because there were so many people across New York city who wanted to learn like what it meant to have power and what it meant to build their chapters in schools. Um, and we have to remember it's school by school as Nicole mentioned is County by County. It started what with like two counties and then seven and then, uh, all 55 basically came into play in your strike because we knew it. it's the grass move, grassroots movement that really builds us together. Um, we have a lot of work to do in New York to win back trust and 
to fight against the division that's been put upon us, um, especially during COVID times. That's what people want right now to make teachers look like scapegoats. But we're not the scapegoats. We're the most trusted. And there is a reason for that. Let's mm -hmm. always remember that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, you mentioned COVID. Um, Barbara mentioned it in, in her last comment. And, and I would like, I mean, we've got about 20 minutes off for the whole event. And I want to make sure that we save time, uh, you know, at the end for Professor Silver to share, share some more thoughts. Um it, this has been excellent. You, you, this is an impressive, um, Nicole, you hit it right. This is an impressive group of women. That's, that's the story of the, that's the other story of the um, leadership of these movements. Um, it's a women dominated profession. It's been a women dominated leadership. Um, uh, you know, um, uh, that's, that's important. Uh, so, so quickly, like, you know, you know, quick thoughts. Um, and so let's run through the panel for the last time. Um, what is COVID, and we'll start with you, what, what is COVID revealing to you? What are you? What are you seeing with it? And what are your thoughts about um, what it means for the work that we have to be doing? Annie, do you want to start? Sure. I, um, I like Nicole, have uh, been back in school in person since this started. Um, I think the massive amount of defunding of public education is totally apparent right now. Um, I think uh, the idea that teachers are martyrs um, has been completely out there and we really had to rack our brains as educators on what that has really meant that we with our unpaid labor have made the education system it is right now. And we cannot perpetuate or enable the system anymore. We just cannot. Otherwise, like they will keep taking our unpaid labor and our bodies and they're literally taking our bodies as, uh, you know, a fellow CTU member, you know, and other people have lost their lives to COVID-19 and honestly, needlessly, because um, if there were a federal, state or local response, we wouldn't be in this situation right now. Um, and it is our American exceptionalism or individualism that's made our nation the way it is. It's funny that people will say that they don't uh, benefit from government, uh, you know, welfare when they get tax cuts and whatever it is. Um, we are pushing as more to uh, toward a campaign to tax the rich because New York State finally has a super majority of Democrats. So that's one thing we really have to do to change the stakes and make education actually funded. Um, there's a lot more I could say, but I'm going to let uh, these lovely ladies continue. Thank you. Um, Barbara, uh, let's let's go to you. Thoughts on uh, what COVID has revealed and what, what that means for our, our actions. Uh, I would say three things. One is uh, the brutality of capitalism. And as Annie points out, like the expendability of workers, uh, and, you know, to Beverly saying people challenge whether or not education workers are workers, it's really clear we, we are. Uh, and I also think, quite honestly, that in some ways it's revealed or I am in the middle of questioning uh, our capacity at, at, at this point to build and use our power. I think we've been challenged in this crisis uh, to know our power. Um, that said, I, one of the things that I've really landed on as an organizer 
that the COVID crisis that help, has helped me see more clearly is just how incredibly important it is. We talk a lot about one-to-ones, but I have come to understand how important it is to bring workers together to talk to each other, to identify issues, to come to understand their power, to come to make a plan to use their power. I've been moved uh, and sustained in this moment uh, by how, how over and over and over again, when we bring workers together in a sort of deeply democratic space that says, let's figure out how we have power and how we're going to use it, that people, workers respond and are transformed in that moment. Uh, and so that that's the piece of hope that I'm holding holding on to that feels very real, feels very tangible to me. Yeah, there's a lot. Well put. There's a lot of there's a lot of conversations that come out of that, and um, that's a, it is a challenge. Um, I think that's right. Um, uh, Diamond Tate, to, to you, um, what do you think uh, COVID has revealed, and what does it mean for what our our actions need to be? Uh, I think it's revealed two major things for me. One is that um, the digital divide is very profitable. Um, I'm always uh, thinking how far behind my students were uh, with technology because they didn't have any technology. And now that we have the perfect opportunity to get them caught up, um, we are, it seems like people are wasting the opportunity and would rather have our black and brown students back on the same uh, playing field as their white counterparts instead of using this as an opportunity to actually give them uh, an advantage. Um, And so what I see is that them not having the access to the technology, us uh, people continually perpetuating um, their uh, computer illiteracy becomes profitable because now we must put them in school buildings. Now we must create all of these other programs to uh, to accommodate uh, these group of people that just can't figure out how to work a computer. It becomes a cop out instead of an op- instead of an opportunity. Um, and secondly, I would say that it showed me that you know I've, educators have really been oppressed. Um, you know, the new kid on the block coming in is looking like people been real, real like uh, just beat down. And it seems like what people have been looking for, you know, a lot of times we use the word leader. But I think what really people have been looking for is someone just to be a voice, someone to just say it, say what we want to say, you know, and and even even if it's not popular, even if it's not going to make everyone feel good. You know, I think that educators are used to being rule followers and being nice and always catering to other people. So I think that what they're really looking for now are people that's going to take care of them and speak for them. That's what I think this is revealed. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, Arlene, same, same questions to you. Yes. Um, thank you for that question. I think for COVID-19 for me just reveals uh, that we're in a we're in the most critical period of our of our lifetimes and, and, and maybe of history uh, in terms of 
what what is the future going to look like? And it brings up a lot of questions about what is the labor movement going to look like? What is education going to look like? What is our world going to look like? I mean, we're coming out of, you know, four years of Trumpism and and then we're we're engulfed in uh, a public health crisis that's affecting our economic crisis. Uh, it's just bigger than anything we've ever experienced before. And the fact that this is about life and death, uh, people dying every second, just makes the struggle that we're all a part of much more important. And as, as Beverly said at the beginning, you know, our vision, we have to promote that vision for what we want for the future is a healthy, peaceful sustainable uh, world where we value each other. I mean, these have always been the goals, but I think COVID-19 tells us we need to be on this together. Mm. Yeah, amen. Um, Thank you for that. Uh, Nicole, your thoughts? I sense that they've said a whole lot that I would say I'm going to turn mine more to be union focused. I'm part of the West Virginia United Caucus um, and we're part of the UCOR family as well. And, you know, we, we continually have conversations about how we can make our union stronger. And what has been laid bare to me is that organizing never stops and never stops. <laughs> um, you must continually bring in new people and that you have to be issues focused. You know, I'm, I'm brand new to my county. I'm probably far more left than anyone else. And I can't go in there with those, those blinders on. You, you will never be a successful organizer if you are going to look at your fellow workers in that, in that way, that I look at that lens with them. I have to look at them as workers And I also have to look at myself and my community and get them on board with that we are workers, we are the majority, and the enemy are the wealthy. And that is a common enemy that we all share. Okay, great. Um, um, That is a clarion call to arms by some of the most impressive, um, accomplished labor organizers that we've put in a panel um, that I've been in a panel with um, for a long, long time. Thank you guys all for your thoughts and your insights. Uh, Look forward to continuing to organize with you and make this struggle grow. Um, Let's bring in Beverly Silver. back. Um, uh, Professor, I'd love to hear your your thoughts and take on having heard that and um, what it brings to your mind. Oh, it brings so many things to my mind. It was really a wonderful discussion, and I, I thank all of you, really. Um, it's inspiring and also leads to all sorts of things uh, to discuss further. So, um, so I, let, let me just choose, choose a couple things because we've got a little time. Um, so one was this um, came up in relation to, uh, well, one is I, I agree that we're in the moment where of brutality of capitalism and that where it's becoming more and more brutal. And of course, that's part of what's making it easier to organize, but it's also uh, extremely dangerous moment in history um, that we're in. 
And I, but more specifically, um, in terms of the COVID, post-COVID, uh, is that is is this question of uh, austerity, you know, because uh, there was a little bit of a lift off, lift up on the idea of austerity, but I think that um, you know we're we're going to be returning to uh, austerity, a big push on austerity politics, so the you know the Republicans are going to rediscover themselves as 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 uh, fiscal hawks and as debt hawks, and uh, and we can't cre- recreate the same situation that we've been in for uh, you know since Reagan basically, where Reagan runs up the deficits, Clinton imposes austerity, then Bush runs up the deficits, and then Obama brings down the deficits, and now Trump has sent the debt, even before COVID, sent the deficit out of control. And then if it's, and and if it's going to be under Democrats, that the deficit's gonna be brought back under control, then we have, then we're recreating the situation that were produced. Uh, I mean, there are lots of things that produced Trump, but it's one of the things that produced, which is that that the, the you know, more left party, let's say, is is the one that's the one that's more consistently imposing austerity, and so we need, and so there, it needs to be just there, there's something about this is like a it's a major again it's part of the overall vision is like how do you get people out of that austerity logic? How do we get out of that austerity logic so we don't change inequality? We don't also don't get off this inequality train unless we get out of the austerity logic. And maybe it's about partly about taxes, it's about other things, but it's about putting also money into this, money into health, money into education. And then that's where the teachers and the nurses are central. So that that was that was one thought that came to my mind. And I am real boy, I'm, I'm I'm nervous, you know, and hopefully hopefully you guys and we all can figure out, you know, there's a collective uh, strategy here for for dealing what seems to me it's it's coming it's going to be coming at us fast and the and they already have the narrative on their side about how you know debt is bad you can't you know household, households have to balance their budget so why not the government blah 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 right okay yeah, yeah, so that's, no I, I that's I really it's it's a good point and it, you know maybe it's for another panel but like digging into some of the, the implications for our political thinking. Um, I've definitely noticed like in in, in the teach, in the CTU, there's sometimes a reflection, uh, reflectiveness among a lot of really skilled union activists away from political activism because it's been such a morass. Yeah. Um, not, you know, with, with important exceptions. I mean, there's been some good work in Chicago, but um, I'm glad you raised the point. What, what, what else do you think? I'm sure it's political. I don't, I don't necessarily see it as political. I see it as more as part of political. I, we probably, we probably like have to figure out, but but yeah. more again part of this articulation of the vision, you know, right. about what the society should look like, and you know, and I, you know, but there is a, um, yeah, the other, um, I guess the the I, I, maybe I just end with this uh, renewal, you know, one thing that struck me is this. Um, Thing that the precondition, for, one of the preconditions for the renewal of the labor movement in the 21st century, 
is what we see on this panel, you know, because we, in the 90s, there was this big mismatch between the feminization of the labor force of the previous decades and the leadership of the labor movement. And, 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 and I think we're now, you know, in a precondition of the renewal is, was to overcome that mismatch. And, yeah, and I think that that's um, part of what we're seeing here. Um, I had a question, but I think I can't. It, it actually, I can't. I can't get. I don't think we answer my question about what's going to be left in terms of this technological change after COVID. But I guess it'll. Well, it'll have to wait for another conversation. I, I assume. Yeah. Well, no, it's good. To, it's it's good to pose a question that we don't have time to answer. That's going to keep people coming back for more. Um, say a little bit more about that, and and then we maybe we can uh, leave by by stimulating everyone's brain. Yeah, no, it has to do with, for example, like so you know, in, at least in, in in you know where I'm teaching my university, you know, there's always been a resistance to the online teaching, you know, and it's seen as like a a, a um, whatever uh, some some kind of a hidden agenda thing because the, the university's been pushing it for a long long time but now we've all accepted the online because of you know because of the public health crisis and then but i, I don't know whether um it's you know in terms of uh whether the, there are things in this crisis that are going to in the end lead to fundamental transformations i mean one of the things about teaching is that technologically it hasn't changed very much i mean you know over a hundred years or whatever, you know, and is this, is it a turning point or is it just like working so badly that we'll just, you know, it's just proving in fact why technologically, you know, teaching has, has not changed dramatically uh, over time. No, well, that's, that's a good, great, that's a great question. I mean, uh, obviously um, physical proximity matters. You get a lot of signals, you, you know, from that. And I can say that there's going to be a, you know, core meetings have been better attended as remote meetings because you, you know, you do a meeting on uh, in the middle middle part of the city, and even still, it's it takes people 40 minutes or an hour to battle rush hour traffic after a hard day's work, and then similar amount of time to get home. Uh, you know, when you're in the dark and it's cold and, it, uh, you know, I, 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 I could easily imagine that that when this pandemic is over, well, a couple of things. One, when the pandemic goes over, we'll keep, um, well, I'm, I, I suspect we'll keep some remote features. Um, and the other thing that I was going to say is that uh, I'm sure when this pandemic is over, um, we're going to send an invitation to all of you guys to come to Chicago and try this again in person, um, where we can uh, go, where we can keep the conversation going afterwards um, over some food and a drink. And um, it's really been great having you guys. And um, a special uh, thanks um, to uh, Professor Beverly Silver. You, you've been great, really stimulating, uh, you know, helped crystallize some ideas and put that out uh, and then to uh, the, and get more CTU gear. And, uh, and, and also, and, okay. yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And thanks to Andy Tan um, from Moore, New York, and Barbara Mataloni from um, Labor Notes and Diamante, and Diamante Brown, Diamond Day Brown, sorry, uh, from Be More and Baltimore Teachers Union, and Arlene Inouye from UTLA Power, uh, and Nicole McCormick from uh, West Virginia United and um, uh, Lafayette County, did I get it right? 
Fayette, Fayette County. Fayette. Sorry, Fayette. Uh, very good. And, and, and thank you guys all for being on uh, for our audience online. And I hope to see um, as many of you who can at the core convention tomorrow where we're going to keep the conversation going. Thanks, everyone. Good night. Good night, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.